Hello and welcome to The Beethoven Files, episode 30. I'm Terence O'Grady, and today we're going to take a look at Beethoven's Triple Concerto in C Major, Opus 55. This is an unusual work for a standard early 19th century orchestra with trumpets, although only a single flute, and three soloists, violin, cello, and piano, standard instrumentation for a piano trio. Concertos for a group of soloists, although quite common in the Baroque period, were very rare by the late 18th or early 19th centuries. Some commentators, such as Mark D. Moskowitz and R. Larry Todd, in their essay, The Triple Concerto as Outlier, have linked the work to the Symphonia Concertante tradition, a hybrid genre, symphonic in style, but spotlighting a series of solo instruments, particularly popular in France in the 18th century, although notable examples by Mozart and Haydn also exist. Is this an example of Beethoven's interest in French music stemming from his, at that time, flourishing enthusiasm for Napoleon and the French Revolution? Perhaps. It is clear that Beethoven never composed anything like it again. The exact circumstances that led to this work are uncertain. In 1802, Beethoven had made sketches of a concerto in D major for this combination of instruments, but soon abandoned it. Then, in October of 1803, his brother Karl made mention of a triple concerto in a letter to the publishers Breitkopf and Hartel. But Karl was known to dangle works before publishers that were, at that time, just possibilities rather than actual scores. Nevertheless, it's assumed that Beethoven began work on the concerto in 1803 while still working on the Eroica Symphony, completing it in 1804. Schindler made the claim years later that the piano part was composed for a young Archduke Rudolf, who was one of Beethoven's most talented students. It's true that the piano part, although sounding impressive enough, was not as technically challenging as in some of Beethoven's more ambitious sonatas, suggesting that he may have composed the part with a pianist of more modest accomplishments in mind. But of course, Schindler's pronouncements on such matters are often questionable, and there's no evidence to suggest that the young man ever participated in a performance of the work, which in the end was actually dedicated once again to Prince Lobkowitz. The more challenging violin and cello parts, especially the latter, were intended for two more experienced players, one of which may well have been the extraordinarily able cellist Anton Kraft. It's been speculated that there may have been a private performance of the work by the Archduke's Orchestra in 1804. It was publicly performed in April of 1808 and again in May with neither performance generating much enthusiasm among the critics of the day. On to the work itself. The first movement is a long one, understandably so, since there are three soloists who must all be given enough space to make their presence known individually. The movement is in common time, marked allegro, and begins pianissimo, with a 12-measure introduction which presents a version of the motive that is to dominate the first subject. To some commentators, this introduction really is the first subject, 
and it certainly gets all the attention in the soloist's exposition. This motive is then presented a step higher, and a fragment made up of the last four notes continues to move up the scale until the pattern breaks and the rhythmic activity slows as we prepare for a cadence on the dominant chord, briefly exhibiting a crescendo surge in the process. This introduction, or first version of the theme, is, as multiple commentators have pointed out, phrased in an unusual manner and seems to start and stop and then start up again in a slightly awkward or at least unpredictable fashion. Nevertheless, it does establish a clear sense of momentum with its regularly changing chords directed toward an obvious harmonic goal. When we arrive at what some commentators hear as the official first subject, we encounter a new and more expansive version of the motive heard in the introductory measures, although it shares the dotted note rhythm heard in the first version. This new version of the motive starts on the tonic, dips down a half step to the leading tone, and then basically circles around the tonic note. Then it does the same thing starting on the third of the tonic chord, and then again on the fifth, harmonized the third lower by the second violins, and with the violas and cello providing harmonic support with repeated patterns, and crescendoing subtly along the way. When the strings finally finish repeating the motives, the woodwinds then take it up back on tonic. So although we do hear an interesting increase in texture along the way, the fact remains that it's an unusually static theme, with the result that, harmonically, we hear nothing but the tonic chord for eight measures in a row. The sense of harmonic momentum established in the introductory version of the theme definitely flags here. Well, we're due for a change, both melodically and harmonically, and we get a rather dramatic one, fortissimo in fact, even bombastic, as we enter into what soon becomes recognizable as a modulatory transition to the new key of the dominant, with sustained chords in the woodwinds, throbbing sixteenth notes in the strings, and rapid ascending scale lines in cellos and double basses. We do hear a quick reference or two back to the first theme, but it's clear enough that we're on our way to the second subject. The transition quiets at the end to prepare for the second theme, 
which is itself rather quiet. Nevertheless, it's somewhat evocative of the French overture style, with its reliance on dotted rhythms and dignified triadic outlines, somewhat military-styled, but less self-consciously heroic than in Symphony No. 3. Still, this theme hints at a more emotional quality than the first, unfolding generally in slower note values, and even in the opening phrase, featuring some passing chromaticism that tilts us for a while in the direction of A minor, although the second phrase returns us to G major. The second statement of the theme is given over to the horns and woodwinds, and this time it heads in the direction of F major. But a very quiet and somewhat mysterious sustained chromatic passage interrupts the statement and temporarily obscures the tonality providing us with a glimpse of a distant A-flat major and then F minor before returning to G major. And, once back in G major, we hear a clever little closing section, clearly related to the second subject by its use of dotted rhythms, but new enough to sound fresh. As you heard, the frolicsome little dotted rhythm motive is tossed back and forth among various instruments for a while, and then the actual motive disappears. But the repeated dotted eighth sixteenth note patterns continue, fortissimo and staccato, in a very sternly militaristic sounding closing section, which eventually fades away, only to return fortissimo for its final declaration. After this impressively bombastic section, which in the end takes us back to the original tonic of C major and concludes the orchestral exposition, the music quiets, and we hear the beginning of the soloist's exposition. It begins with the solo cello. Jeremy Yutkin points out in his fascinating book From Silence to Sound, Beethoven's Beginnings, that the cello is the first solo voice heard in all three of the movements from this work. The cellist, playing high in the instrument's range, introduces the introductory version of the theme over throbbing eighth notes in the strings. 
This introductory version has, as I mentioned earlier, the advantage of exhibiting a well-developed sense of harmonic momentum. Adding to this sense of momentum is the descending line in the violas, which adds a bit of passing tension as we move to a cadence on G major again. Overlapping with this cadence is the violin's version of the theme, again based on the 8-bar introduction. It's not identical, the throbbing 8th note accompaniment continues, but the cello continues as well, beneath the violin echoing some of its dotted rhythm motives and joining with it in tenths as it breaks into a series of cascading triplets. Let's hear that much of the soloist's exposition. And then, of course, it's the pianist's turn, and it presents the same introductory version of the theme in three octaves, with the solo violin playing a countermelody against it, which also makes use of the characteristic dotted rhythms, while the cello dives deep into its range for a series of 16th note triad-based figuration patterns. After eight bars, we move temporarily to F major, and we pass not to a series of triplets, but 16th note scale lines, the violin and cello going one way up, and the piano the other, descending in thirds and octaves. Soon, the diatonic scale patterns in the piano are replaced by ascending chromatic ones in thirds, and eighth note triplets finally make a brief comeback as we lead into the cadence in C major before the second subject. The soloists then take a brief break while the orchestra presents a 2D section, a new theme played fortissimo, the melody doubled by first violins and woodwinds. We'll call it a closing theme, but it's very familiar in some respects because of its reliance on triads and dotted rhythms, also heard in the second theme, while being more obviously march-like than anything that's come before mostly because of the aggressively rhythmic repeated 16th notes and the rapidly alternating 1-5-1-5 pattern in the bass. This four-bar phrase, now softened to piano, is then taken up by the cello, where it leads directly into another new thematic idea, which will have a role to play in the development section ahead. 
After a solid cadence on C major, this new idea, also four bars in length, is then taken up by the solo violin in a highly ornamented 16th note version, again 16th note broken chord accompaniment from the cello. Let's hear the closing theme or closing section to that point. You probably noticed that following another solid cadence on C major, we heard the beginning of some figuration patterns. In this instance, octave leaps in thirds, moving up the scale in sixteenth notes. Some partially new melodic ideas are also presented, one taken from the tail end of the transition to the second subject, but now extended with distinctive chromatic inflections added and making its way to A minor, and which serves as a nicely contrasting little codetta theme. There is a mostly pianistic transition from there to the beginning of the development section, which is marked by the solo cello's presentation of the second theme, quietly in the somewhat unusual key of A major, although we were to a large degree prepared for it by the modulation to A minor in the final measures of the exposition. Here are the last few bars of the piano transition leading to the solo cello statement of the second theme, Piano and Dolce, which begins the development section. You may have noticed that the solo violin accompaniment of broken chords is frequently below the cello part, which again has moved higher in its range. We began the development with just the three solo instruments, but it's not long before the orchestral strings enter, playing chords in a pizzicato accompaniment. But this is, after all, a development section. So it's hardly a surprise when Beethoven begins to isolate and play with some of the motivic elements from the themes. First, the dotted rhythm four-note pickup figure, and then the entire first measure arpeggio pattern. Having arrived in A minor, Beethoven starts to focus again on the dotted note rhythm figures, but now moving up and down by step in repeated figuration patterns in the cello, while the violin engages in more broadly spanned arpeggio patterns. Mm -hmm. 
The development section goes on for quite a while, and I'm not going to try to trace its progress to its conclusion. The advantage Beethoven has here with three soloists is that the coloristic possibilities are considerable, and he does take full advantage of them. Although the repeated triplet figuration patterns with the solo strings playing in tenths do seem to get a bit tedious in places. But the original feeling of energy is recaptured very quickly when the march-like theme from the closing section, now in F major, comes barging in. At the end of that excerpt, when the solo cello returns and again captures the spotlight, presenting the introductory version of the first subject over throbbing eighth notes, it sounds an awful lot like we've reached the recapitulation. But we haven't, not quite yet. At this point, we're still in the wrong key, A major. The reason it sounds so familiar is that this passage is very much like the one in which the cello introduced the soloist exposition although that was in C major. And it continues in much the same way as in the beginning of the soloist exposition. The violin comes in with its version of the theme a fifth higher after eight bars, just as it did before. And we carry on in much the same way, adjusted for the new key, with a long string of eighth note triplets, cello and violin moving in tenths. But not only is the key different, the texture is rather different as well, because of the new key. The cello soloist, for example, is playing its arpeggio patterns somewhat higher in its range, and the texture as a result is less muddy at this point. Other differences emerge as well as we proceed. The back and forth ascending scale lines have been replaced in places by descending arpeggios in the piano, and now the first five notes of the first theme are broken off and developed separately alternating with arpeggio patterns. And as we work our way back to C major, the codetta theme also makes a recurrence, and it's mixed in with the opening motive of the first subject. And although new tonal centers are hinted at here and there, Beethoven is increasingly insistent on C major, repeating its dominant note for several times in a row until, with a final crescendoing swirl of 16th note scale lines from all the soloists, we finally hear a triumphal cadence on C major, 
and the beginning of the real recapitulation. The full orchestra blazing away with the introduction version of the first theme, followed 13 bars later, and much more softly, by the soloist presentation of the second version of the first theme, in which they are soon joined by the full orchestra. Here's the final part of the development section, starting with the introduction of the Codetta theme and including the further development of the motive from the opening bars of the first subject, leading eventually into the recapitulation back in C major with the full orchestra fortissimo and rather militantly presenting the introductory version of the theme. This is followed pianissimo by the second version of the theme, the one which repeats the tonic chord several measures in a row. From that point on, all of the familiar themes take their curtain calls, some of them more than once, but not necessarily in the original order. We don't stay in C major for the entire recapitulation, but we don't range very far from it for very long. There is no official cadenza after the original codetta recurs, but there is a passage accompanied softly by a stripped-down version of the orchestra where all the soloists rather modestly seize the spotlight, each in turn, before they combine to crescendo into yet another rousing version of the closing section, serving now to introduce the final coda. Here is that cadenza substitution passage. There's a lot more closing to do before we arrive at the somewhat belabored final cadence, but we are going to move on now to the second movement. The slow movement, once again, is, as in the Waldstein Sonata, Opus 53, less a completely self-contained, independent movement than a very expressive introduction to the final movement, a rondo. It's in the key of A-flat major, 3A time, and marked Largo. This particular key exhibits another of those chromatic-mediant relationships with the previous movement, and an unusual choice by late 18th century standards. 
but it is closely related to C minor, which Beethoven visited more than once in the first movement, and as you may recall, A flat major made a fairly brief appearance in the tail end of the second subject from the first movement. And of course, things were changing fast in the early 19th century, especially for Beethoven, in regard to what were considered acceptable key relationships between movements. The main theme, really the only important theme, is introduced immediately by the string section alone, violins one and two both muted. Here are the first four bars. At first glance, there doesn't seem to be a great deal to this theme, or at least the introductory version of it that we're presented with here. It begins on the third scale degree in A flat, dips down briefly to a lower neighbor tone, and then moves up a step to the fourth scale degree, which it ornaments briefly with its upper neighbor tone, before slowly moving back down the scale, ending a note lower than it began. Harmonically, there's very little remarkable here. We begin on the tonic chord, but mostly focus on the dominant seventh, although we do hear a hint of an inverted supertonic seventh. That's the seventh chord built on the second scale degree. The texture is generally simple enough, completely homophonic, all parts moving in the same note values, although there is some independence between the parts in terms of melodic shape. Chord inversions also have a role to play, and there is some variety in terms of articulations and rhythmic values, with dotted 16-32nd note combinations playing an important part in the third measure. But really, you'd be hard-pressed to identify any terribly unique features at this point. But perhaps that's not really too surprising. Michael Sternberg in his book The Concerto, A Listener's Guide, states, some of these themes are characterized by that certain studied neutrality we find in Beethoven from time to time, when it seems he just wants to show the unexpected possibilities of material that many people might find unpromising. Many other commentators have made similar points. Beethoven's basic melodic ideas are not always very remarkable sometimes maybe even purposely unremarkable. But what Beethoven does with those ideas is often quite remarkable. And this is at least to some extent true in this movement as well. Besides, we've only heard the first four bars, and they come very much in the nature of an introduction. So it's a bit early to pass judgment on Beethoven's melodic ideas for this movement at this point. Beginning halfway through the fourth bar, the solo cello marked molto cantabile enters with its rather more interesting version of the opening phrase. It begins with three ascending sixteenths as an upbeat, and then proceeds to extend the first idea upward, coming to rest this time on the fifth of the scale, after an expressive upper neighbor non-harmonic tone has provided the first subtly emotional gesture of the theme.
The second part of the theme, entering four bars later in measure nine, is very different. While the melody in the first four bars ascended and occasionally descended in small increments, the second part of the melody is much more expansive. Starting on the fifth of the scale, the melody, moving in relatively slow note values, expands upwards in repeated leaps, a step higher each measure, before coming back to rest on the third of the scale, where a varied repeat of the first phrase begins. Following that phrase, we hear an extended cadential phrase, which sits mostly on the dominant seventh chord, before arriving on the tonic with another yearning, non-harmonic tone, and which is built on some motives from the first part of the theme, while also adding a few of its own. As you heard right at the end of my excerpt, the piano then takes over with a series of gliding 30-second note triplets in octaves, while the woodwinds and later pizzicato strings accompany with their own version of the introductory theme. In fact, one way or another, the theme or some idea clearly drawn from it is with us for most of the remaining measures of the movement although it may well be lost in the embroidery provided by the three soloists. The sweetly contemplative mood that has dominated to this point shifts somewhat in the last part of the movement, where the soloists drop out and the strings switch initially to an alternation between repeated 16th and 32nd notes, beginning quietly but moving quickly to forte. Quiet arpeggio-based contributions by the three soloists soon return, but it's clear soon enough that we're in a transition section and headed to G major, not for its own sake, but for its usefulness as a springboard back to C major, the key of the finale. The slow movement concludes with a series of rapidly repeated G's which lead directly to the cello G that begins the refrain theme for the final movement and which returns us to C major. 
We've seen that finales in general, and concertos in particular, have often made use of the rondo form, or some version of it. And in this case, Beethoven presents us with a rondo alla polacca, the title referring to his nod to the Polish polonaise style in the 3-4 time signature and in the use of some characteristic polonaise rhythms. It's a high-spirited movement, to say the least, with a number of coquettish little transition passages that surely would have had the performers, and many in the audience, struggling to suppress a smile. The refrain theme, introduced once again by the cello high in its range, over mostly broken chord accompaniment in the string section, is a typically frisky one, featuring a couple of balanced four-bar phrases. If there's anything unusual about it, it's the use of a chromatic chord in measure 7, of the German 6th variety that we've encountered before. That chromatic chord sends us in the direction of E major, rather than coming to a halt on the dominant ortonic chords in C major. Then, in E major, or at least starting in E major, the violin takes its turn with the refrain theme but in the last three bars of its statement shifts to E minor, the first of three chromatic chords that very cleverly deliver us back to C major. Let's hear that much. Following the refrain, we shift to G major quickly and unceremoniously with a brief dotted rhythm passage and are then introduced to a new theme. It starts with dotted rhythm figures in the strings and then proceeds to quick, swirling, five-note motives beginning with a grace note, presented first in the piano, and then to a sixteenth-note arpeggio motive in the solo violin and later solo cello. 
After that, triplet-based sixteenth note flurries, often harmonized in sixths, start to take over. We pause with a fermata on a dominant seventh chord to prepare us for the return to C major. And after a few more coquettish little note repetitions, we return to the refrain theme, now heavily adorned by trills, grace notes, and a crescendo from pianissimo to fortissimo. This little digression is by no means a remarkable one, but it keeps the energy level high, and it does provide a brief bit of contrast before the more distinctive beginning part of the refrain theme reappears, now in a varied and abbreviated form. No faint to E major this time around. A longer and rather robust transition follows, marked by a number of offbeat sforzandos and some sharp contrasts in dynamics, which finally takes us to a rather gentle dolce episode, marked by long-spanned undulating shapes, led as usual by the solo cello, but with the other solo instruments soon joining in and at times trading off with rapid, swirling, triplet-based sixteenth-note passage work, often in tenths and sometimes contrary motion. Here's a little bit of some of those exchanges. Eventually, the frenetic pace slows and the music quiets, and we return to another coquettish transition passage, which will take us back to the refrain theme. We're going to skip that return and move on to the next episode. This episode, in A minor, exhibits a particularly clear example of traditional Polonaise rhythms. Here is a simplified example of one instance in the violins, but the woodwinds soon take it up as well. Although these rhythmic patterns clearly evoke the Polonaise style, a number of commentators have pointed out that 
when the playful, high-spirited melody is factored in, the whole thing comes off as somewhat gypsy-flavored. The solo violin is featured first with a theme that dashes up the A melodic minor scale before the piano quickly brings us back down again, landing on C. Then the cello takes up a version of the violin's phrase, now starting in C major, but quickly nudging back to A minor, which is confirmed by the piano's brief response. At that point, we begin to encounter virtuoso embellishments of the exuberant ascending theme, including one by the piano, which is now answered by the solo violin and cello. And along the way, we also get a temporary shift of the tonality to D minor. We'll hear the first part of the episode. Following a cadence on A minor, we hear a much more low-key transition passage characterized by a new motive, introduced naturally by the solo cello, beginning with an ascending octave leap as an upbeat, continuing with a series of repeated eighth notes on the first two beats of the measure, and a swirl of sixteenth notes on the third, an idea that is echoed an octave higher two bars later by the solo violin. Here is a simplified example. Against this new melodic idea, the pianist places a smooth flow of 16th note arpeggios, while that characteristic Polonaise rhythm remains softly in the background. We begin this passage in A minor, but quickly move beyond that with a circle of fifths progression before ending up back in C major. I've described this as a transition away from the gypsy-like episode, but with the Polonaise rhythms still very much in evidence here, you could just as well hear this as part two of the middle episode. Thank you. 
Near the end of that transition, you heard a sharp reduction in the texture and the introduction of what amounts to a written-out trill between G and its lower neighbor in the piano's lower range, while the right hand introduces a quiet and rather mysterious descending diminished seventh chord arpeggio, which, combined with the left-hand trill, creates a dominant minor ninth chord, a classic tension chord for the period. It resolves briefly to C minor, but soon enough we're back, sitting on the dominant seventh chord, to prepare us for another varied recurrence of the refrain theme, initially by the three solo instruments alone and abounding in trills. You heard a little of that at the end of my excerpt. The entire orchestra soon joins in, fortissimo, on a repeat of the refrain theme, and we then come to a solid cadence on C. Following that cadence, we hear the recurrence of the first episode, which opens with an ascending scale pattern starting on the dominant note as before. Again, it begins dolce in C major, the cello leading the way with the violin and then piano following. But it develops a bit differently this time around, soon moving in the direction of F major. And although the original motive is spun out as before, it is handled a little differently this time when the piano takes it over. Still, most of the identifying features from the first episode remain in place, including the frenetic 16th note triplets I referred to last time, which act as an extended transition to the next section. Since you'll remember much of this from my previous excerpt, this one will be brief. I mentioned the extended transition, and at this point we would normally be expecting it to be a retransition back to the refrain theme. But that's not what actually happens here, and it's not really that much of a surprise. Rondo forms were used by a lot of composers, and Beethoven was by no means the only one to make changes or adjustments to the form. In this case, Beethoven reintroduces the retransition from the second episode, the Gypsy episode with the Polonaise rhythms, which incorporates a melodic idea back in A minor, which could, as I mentioned earlier, be thought of as part two of the second episode as much as a transition, even though in this case we're missing part one. So when we may well begin to wonder, Will the refrain theme finally return? And the answer is, not as soon as you might think. Because after encountering another transitional passage, which we expect to take us to the refrain, we meet up with a shift to 2-4 time and a new tempo marking of Allegro to introduce a section which displays a lot of energy, but very little connection to anything we've heard to that point. Thank you. 
It certainly provides the soloists with another chance to show off their glistening technique, sort of comparable to the final cabaletta section in an opera aria. But this does not, in fact, conclude the movement. It takes a while, but eventually, after a combination of ascending chromatic scales and trills on the dominant seventh chord in C major, we return to the original tempo and meter, and the refrain theme finally returns in a final variant, studded with virtuoso interjections from the three soloists. They do their best to keep the level of excitement high, but I'm afraid listeners are likely to hear the final measures as something of an anticlimax. We crescendo toward the big final and somewhat tedious cadence, of course, but after the fun and games of the 2-4 section, it's all rather a letdown. So what, in the end, can we say about the triple concerto? It's been damned with faint praise by any number of commentators over the years, over the centuries, actually, and it is certainly not in the same league with the Eroica Symphony. It obviously makes no attempt to be. Can we think of it, perhaps, as a later example of the sort of lighter, entertaining style embodied by Beethoven's first two concertos? Maybe, but as one commentator wrote, the triple concerto is no one's favorite Beethoven concerto. So even on that level, it's hard to think of the work as a shining success. Why this lukewarm reaction to the piece? The answer may lie in the neutral character of some of the themes, something I mentioned earlier in connection with Steinberg's quote. In the first movement of the concerto, which so often is thought to set the tone for what follows, the first theme we encounter does have a rather generic feel to it, the second main theme in that movement only slightly less so. But neutral themes are not necessarily a negative if the composer proceeds to exploit them in highly creative ways. Does Beethoven do that here? To some extent but the movement and the work as a whole is hardly a showcase in that regard. But in respect to neutral or generic-sounding themes, it's only fair to mention that some of the later themes introduced in the opening movement's exposition are in fact quite distinctive and memorable, 
even though often relatively simple and not always developed to any great extent. Does the middle movement reveal the emotional depth typical of Beethoven's greatest slow movements? No, but then the movement is heard more as a long introduction to the final rondo movement than as a self-contained movement in its own right. How about the rondo finale? Here we expect a lighter, entertaining movement displaying a lot of energy. And this is exactly what we get. The second episode, with its combination of Polonaise rhythms and gypsy-flavored melody, is an extremely attractive one, even if the initial refrain theme is a bit more mundane. Is there perhaps a little too much repetition of some of the thematic ideas, especially in the transitions? Maybe, but then again we have three soloists, all of whom must be given space to display their wares, and that concern almost certainly affects the length of some sections within each of the movements. Did Beethoven himself consider this a great work? It doesn't appear so. But as Swafford points out, that didn't stop him from selling the work to his publishers as soon as he could, even before the first formal performance had taken place. But if the triple concerto is a mixture of neutral and inspired thematic elements, there is no question that it is a colorful piece and surely worth every listener's attention at least once. For our next episode, we'll tackle an unquestioned masterpiece, the so-called Appassionata Piano Sonata, number 23, opus 57. Thank you. 